Today marks 20 years since emergency responders found a murdered woman inside of a burning home in Kill Devil Hills. The victim was 33-year-old Denise Johnson. You wouldn't know it looking at this home that something terrible happened here 20 years ago, a horrible crime that is yet to be solved. I remember seeing heavy black smoke up in the air. I just remember a pool of blood and her laying in it. We knew obviously something was way wrong. This wasn't just a routine call. On July 13, 1997, someone brutally murdered 33-year-old Denise Johnson inside her childhood home in North Carolina, then set it on fire. For 22 years, Johnson's killer has eluded police, living among us, undetected. This is CounterClock, the investigation into the unsolved murder of Denise Johnson. I'm your host, Delia D'Ambra. By the time Denise was 33, she dated a lot. Among those men were several steady boyfriends. Throughout my investigation, there's one name, a longtime boyfriend that keeps coming up, Jeff Magruder. It took me several months to get a hold of him for an interview. Oh, I've known Denise for years. I guess we dated for about three or four years, I guess. Jeff and Denise's relationship was one of the longest she'd had. They had their ups and downs like any couple. But even after they called it quits for good in early 1997, Jeff says he and Denise remained close. I want to say four to six months beforehand. That you guys yeah. had broken up? Right, right. You know, I'd known her for a long time, and, you know, we were just attracted to one another. I mean, that's all I can say about that. You know, I remember sitting down and talking to Denise about the year 2000 coming up, and she was all excited about it and everything. It was just a damn shame she never even made it to 2000. In my notes, I'd written out a lot of questions that I wanted to ask Jeff. He was an insider in Denise's life and knew her better than most people. To this day, he still relives the shock of when he found out that she'd been murdered. I mean, you know, that's somebody you spent time with, of course. You know. What did you want to know right away? Well, like everybody else, wanted to know who did it. But here we go all these years and still don't know who's done it. Jeff still lives on the Outer Banks. He says it's been difficult never knowing who killed the woman that he once loved. Early on, he says investigators actually suspected him for the crime. Got that call and found out that she had been murdered. And a friend of mine said, hey, the cops have been by your house, three or four cop cars. And I called him up and said, hey, you're looking for me. I'll just call you right now and come on. It started worrying me after about three times. And every time I would say something, they would change it on me on what I said. And I'd give them hair samples and fingerprints and you know, and they had my keys at one point, and I know they made copies of it because it was graphite and stuff on it. You know, I told them, I said, you know, I don't want you in my house while I'm gone. Of course not. And stuff like that, you know, it was kind of getting me worried. So the last time that they 
came and got me for questioning, I just told him, I said, look, I've cooperated with you all this time, and I know how stuff works in this small town, and you're looking for somebody, and I need to contact my attorney. I will, and I never heard another word from him. They were bringing up stuff to you about items in the house, trying to see if you would agree or not. Right, right. That's what it seemed like anyway. They brought up the fact that my fingerprints were found in the house with the cinder block. And, you know, my first thing was, was, well, how long does that last? How long does fingerprints last? I don't know nothing about that. And they were telling me years. So I said, well, shit, you're probably going to find them all over because there was plenty of things I tried to fix in there for her, you know, while she was in the house. What kind of questions were they asking you? What kind of information were they being upfront well, about? Well, you know, they wanted to know if I was there. At one point, somebody said they saw a silver Camaro or something, you know, leaving early in the a.m. hours or something. Well, I had a Camaro, but I had a cover on it at my house at Atlantic Street. And when I pulled the cover off, I had a green Camaro and it wasn't even running. And plus, I had my daughter, and I had about 20 eyewitnesses of where I was, including my ex-wife. It's natural for police to suspect a victim's boyfriend or ex-boyfriend, especially when that person is still present in the victim's life or lives in their hometown. So when was the last time that you saw Denise before she was killed? You know, it's been so many years. I want to say two to three weeks beforehand. And were you guys just out and ran into each other? Or? No, she probably, she came by the house. I was working in the yard. Came by the house and stopped in the back because she always wanted to get back together. And I was like, no, I'm not. You know, I'm done. So that was that. And then I heard she was dating and whatever. That, that's fine. Did you feel like she was going through some troubles or anything? I mean, did you feel like there was anything that was bothering her in life? You know, Denise was always going through troubles. Jeff was first to admit he and Denise had rough patches in their relationship. They fought, but would eventually make up after a few weeks apart. But despite it all, his care for Denise, even as an ex-boyfriend, went deep. On the day of her funeral, Jeff was one of the pallbearers who carried Denise's casket. There were so many people there. There was a lot of people. You know, and I know the police were present because they were trying to scope it out as well for being unsolved, you know, like somebody might show up to the funeral that committed it. And it wasn't just the presence of police or the enormous crowd gathered together for the funeral that was noticeable. There was something specific about Denise and her face that Jeff immediately noticed was wrong. In addition to her obvious wounds, Jeff Magruder says his former girlfriend, Denise, had on extremely heavy makeup. He noticed entire sections of her face were covered in bruises. After laying Denise to rest, Magruder left the funeral and every day since has pondered his own theory of what happened to Denise. I've just always felt in my heart that it was a woman that did it. Who would have hated her that much? I don't know. I don't know. You know, that's the question everybody asks. I always felt like it was a woman, and all her close friends always felt the same way, too. 
Jeff, like Donnie Johnson and first responding firefighter Glenn Rainey, is in the camp of people who believe a woman likely killed Denise. Jeff explained further to me his reason why. He brought up a detail I'd not heard from anyone else so far in this investigation. She always had a bat by the front door. Yeah, I think she might have got hit by that bat, you know, to begin with. What? I mean, those stab wounds were all around the neck area. And I don't think that that's what killed her. It was smoke inhalation from her being in that bathroom and it was all tile center block. Jeff's theory that somehow Denise was knocked unconscious before being stabbed was possible. It's something first responding police officer Mark Evans alluded to when I asked him if Denise had any wounds that indicated she tried to fight someone off or been incapacitated. I do recall that she had several cut marks, scratches, abrasions, whatnot, and several wounds about her body that quickly indicated that she was in, you know, fighting for her life. Obviously, it was a struggle going on. The next piece of evidence that lined up with Jeff Magruder's theory was Denise's toxicology report. After pathologist Suzanne Utley reviewed it, she deemed Denise's blood saturation of 25% carbon monoxide proves Denise inhaled smoke for several minutes before she died, meaning the fires were set prior to her death, not after. The carbon monoxide of 25% saturation is elevated above what would be a normal level. She was alive enough to be breathing for a while, but then died from some other cause than inhalation. I ran Jeff's theory by Donnie Johnson. I wondered if she ever knew Denise to keep a baseball bat around the house like Jeff had said. I'm not sure where she kept it, but I think I remember her saying she kept a bat. You know, she played softball some, so I'm sure she would have had a bat. Well, I think I do remember her keeping a bat, but I don't remember, like, you know, seeing it afterwards. Donnie not finding a bat at the house after the murder could only mean one of two things. It was never there to begin with, or investigators took it as evidence. And if they took it as evidence, then that means they believed it was involved in the crime. Jeff Magruder remained adamant in our interview that Denise had a bat in her home for protection. In the time I had with them on the phone, I wanted to find out some more information about what had been going on in Denise's life leading up to her murder. Jeff and Denise may not have been together as a happy couple, but they still lived in the same area, hung out from time to time, and they went to the same parties. He remembers a disturbing encounter at Denise's house within a year of her murder. You know, I was over there one day when a guy was throwing beer bottles at the house early in the a.m. hours and glass was shattering everywhere and I called the police and the police came there. Now, this guy never came face to face with me because he wouldn't get close enough. He was down the road. I don't know who he was, but the cops really never did nothing about it. Did they take a police report? I'm sure they maybe. I mean, they never told me anything about it. But uh, I damn sure called him because I told Denise, I said, this is enough. You know, I'm yelling back and forth to this guy. He's screaming obscenities. And of course, I probably had a few good words to go back. But he wouldn't come down and man up. So I went and asked called the cops. And Denise didn't know who this person was? She may have. You know, I didn't know. Was she there with you when the man showed up? Oh, in- yeah. Yeah, I was at her house. 
few times that I went over to spend the night at her place. Most times she stayed at mine. So this random guy shows up and starts throwing beer bottles and yelling. What was he saying other than curse words? Did he seem like an ex or something? Or I have no idea. That's so strange. I have no idea. And I mean, the police ought to have a record of it. I requested that incident report from the Kill Devil Hills Police Department, but Captain John Taller tells me it doesn't exist. Donnie Johnson got that same answer when she asked about the report. Not long after the murder, she found out about the beer bottles being thrown at Denise's house while Jeff was there. When she pressed detectives to find the report and use it as something to look into in their murder investigation, they pretty much ignored it. I pushed on in my interview with Jeff and brought up a final topic that I knew only those closest to Denise would know about. The kidnap and rape Denise told her family had happened to her in Florida. She told me stories of this, but I mean, as far as names, it didn't mean anything to me. She was messed up over this sexual assault in Florida. She told me about it, but she had gone down there and was involved with some guy that was in the cocaine. And from what I understood, it was a black guy. She always told me that a black guy had raped her. You know, that's all I know about that. I didn't really know. I knew Denise, you know, beforehand, but then when she went to Florida and all, we, you know, that was many years in between of us. Is that something you think she would lie about or not? I don't think so. I mean, you know, she was pretty upset about it at several different times. Jeff says he told police about Denise's sexual assault when they started questioning him as a suspect. After detectives cleared him, he still thought the information was useful and they should have looked into it more. Because of her past or because she was flirting with their man or, you know, whatever. I just always got that impression. And I told the police all this. What'd they say? You know, they just fallen leads. They didn't have nothing. Talking about the assault Denise claimed occurred in Florida only made me want to know more about what really happened. Like you heard in earlier episodes, there's no police report I could find for the rape or kidnapping. It's been decades, and many jurisdictions don't keep records that far back. Donnie Johnson says the assault is what caused Denise to come back to North Carolina, but she didn't return all on her own. Denise's brother-in-law, a man named Bob Burgess, is who Donnie says escorted Denise back from Florida after the attack. Bob's last name probably sounds familiar. He's the father of Mike Burgess, Denise's nephew, that guy who gave me the photographs of Denise from his family's garage. His dad, Bob, is the ex-husband of one of Denise's oldest sisters. Donnie says Bob brought Denise back to Kill Devil Hills after her sexual assault. But when I talked to Bob, he doesn't remember it that way. Some family members had told me that you or a cousin of yours had tried to get her out of there and bring her back to North Carolina. Does that ring any bells? No, it doesn't. Her sister and I went down there, and uh, her sister's boy, we we took off and went to Florida during the time she was down there, but we didn't see her. Why not? Well, I don't know where she was. I was told way back then that she was coming back to go to take some classes to become a stewardess on, you know, airline stewardess. That was, you know, back then. You don't know anything about how Denise got from Florida to the Outer Banks? I really don't. No, I don't. What did you guys do when you got to Florida? Just turn around and come home? 
Oh, no. We went down there to visit a boy, George Williams, a friend of mine who was living in Florida at the time. And Dale, one of the sisters, the middle one. Yeah. Dale uh, and I and her boy went down there and spent uh, about a week, I think, with my friend George, went to football games and went to the beach, Miami, and all that kind of stuff, you know. And you guys were never able to make contact with Denise? We never made any contact with Denise. I really don't know what happened while she was down in Florida. When she came up here, she was she started work right away as a waitress somewhere. And she would come to the house and hang around. But in actuality, the sisters didn't pay her much attention. Why so? Well, I don't know. Uh, Denise was the... The mama loved Denise. I could tell Bob was trying to answer my questions, but in the end, I honestly believe he didn't go to Florida to get Denise and doesn't know what happened to her while she was down there. One memory, though, that isn't murky for him is July 1997 and the morning of Denise's murder. The uh, chief of police came to our house that morning he started to come up the steps and the dog running back down and chased the policemen back into the car. <laughs> that was around seven o'clock in the morning. And I heard the commotion. I got up and called the dog off and uh, they came up and told us that Denise had been killed. It was really hurtful. We had no idea, you know, that it was just crazy. I think back on it, it was one of the saddest times for all the girls. It was just a damn shame. Denise was the sister who actually, they come every Christmas, she made all her presents for all the girls. She made the presents. She was really one of the, probably the best of all the sisters as far as her kindness. Burgess says in the 22 years the case has gone unsolved, he's lost faith in police and never felt confident in their investigation. They ruined the scene with, you know, fire hoses and maybe 20 firemen walking in and out of there trying to take a look at the naked girl really uh, pissed me off. I was never, like, questions from any of them. Never. They never questioned me. Did it ever strike you as odd that they didn't talk to you guys much? Yes, it did. How could some of Denise's own family members living on the Outer Banks not have been interviewed? That seems like the easiest way to eliminate people, but instead police continued to press Denise's former boyfriends. They ruled out Jeff Magruder, but now investigators turn their sights towards other men formerly in Denise's life. One man in particular, who'd become publicly known for searching for Denise's killer himself. One of the most vocal people on the Outer Banks of North Carolina as Denise's case grew colder and colder was one of her ex-boyfriends from the late 1980s, a man named Paul De La Cruz. I was vocal to the point where it was a shame and, and we should do something to remember her. But when it comes to law enforcement, I don't think they really checked anybody. At that time, it was such a small force. And they were kind of like, and I hate to say this, but I don't want to embarrass any of the officials at the time, but there was like 
almost like Mayberry type of stuff. You know, I don't think we had the manpower, had the investigative tools to really investigate it fully. And on top of that, I don't think the workforce that was here at that time, you know, the police force and whoever investigated, I didn't think they were really top-notch or professionals. As the summer of 97 turned into fall, Paul De La Cruz put a lot of effort into organizing and getting people to come to local fundraisers in honor of Denise. He wanted to keep her memory alive and even wrote a song for her. We had a uh, kind of a memorial thing at, at the time. It was called uh, Quagmires. That's the only time I actually ever played that song in public. And basically, like I said, it's called Her Smile. Paul did some sleuthing on his own in the years after the murder. He's a local and still feels deep down that whoever did this was from the area and had been watching Denise. It was unbelievable that, that what had happened. And I, I've heard all kinds of rumors, um, like there was some mysterious couple that had left the beach. And I didn't really know. I think I knew what they looked like and who they were, but I couldn't remember their names. I heard a story about that. They were seen near her house at one of the convenience stores or something like that around the time that that had happened. Almost 10 years had passed between the time Paul dated Denise and when she was murdered. He'd bump into her occasionally around town, and they remained acquaintances. He can't understand why anyone would have wanted her gone. She didn't have a mean bone in her body, so that's what kind of made me feel more... Like, what the hell, you know? I don't think I've ever seen her, like, mad. Anyone who could do that is just crazy. Jeff Magruder and Paul De La Cruz were two of Denise's longest-running boyfriends. I know there are other men she dated who were out there, but I didn't have any proof or names to go on. The only place I had to turn was a photograph of her and a man lounging together by the water. It was that one in the stack that Mike Burgess, Denise's nephew, gave me. And in the picture, Denise looks relaxed, happy, and comfortable with the man. He has his arm around her, and to me, it's clear they're in a relationship. I posted that photo on CounterClock's Facebook page, hoping someone would recognize him and tell me his name. After about a week, the man came forward and wrote me an email. I responded quickly to set up a time to talk. Hello? Hey, is this Chip Evans? This is Chip Evans. Hey, Chip, this is Julia D'Amber from the Counterclock Podcast. How are you? Chip Evans is not related to Mark Evans, the police captain you heard from earlier in the podcast. Chip is one of Denise's ex-boyfriends who claimed to be the man from the photo, and he was eager to find out why I had a picture of him and Denise Johnson. Chip is the man snuggled up next to Denise in the photograph taken in the early 1990s. My wife saw it. She was going, what the hell is your photograph here for? And I was going, I don't know. And then it didn't make sense to me or her. She said, why isn't anybody else's photographs here? Why is it you? And I was going, I don't know. And then when you told me that uh, it was found in a box of photographs, so that kind of makes sense. Where was the photograph taken, the one that I have? Where was that taken at? I thought myself, we, it had to be, it looked like to me, it wasn't on the Outer Banks. So my dad had a, he rented a house in the Keys 
one winter and we drove down there and spent a week with him, I think. So it looked like the water was clear. My dad, he spent two or three winters in Marathon, Florida. And we drove down there one year and I think we spent a week with him. Chip told me that after Denise moved back to the Outer Banks from Florida, they met and became a couple. What was the time frame that you and Denise dated? I'm thinking 91, 92, or 90, 91, somewhere right around there. I could be a year off either way, but about that time period. My family had a store on the beach during those years, and it was it's now off of Arthur's Beach Shop. So we had it. It was called Skipper's, and that's how I guess she lived across the bypass, and she's coming to the store. We met, and we started dating, and I think we were together for close to a couple years. When I first met her, she was working at Lance's. Lance's restaurant um, in Nags Head. It was owned by Lance Newman. Yeah, I think she worked there with a woman named Lori Sellers because she had told me that Lori and her worked together at that restaurant too. Yeah, Right. Lori's mom dated Lance, who owned the restaurant. Chip helped me establish a clearer timeline of Denise's life prior to her murder. We both know Denise lived in Florida for several years in the 1980s. He says by the time they started dating, Denise was really trying to turn over a new leaf and get a fresh start. I don't know how long it had been, but I know she used to talk about it a lot. This happened in Florida, that happened in Florida, but at the time, how long, I don't know. And I do know, if you could put K-Ridge into the picture, when I came along, I think she had just gotten K-Ridge. Chip and Denise dated from roughly 1990 to 1992. They broke up, and then another major event in Denise's life occurred. Her mother died, and Chip says she was never quite the same after that. I can tell you this, that she and I had dated for the period we did, and then we had broken up, and then her mother passed away. Because I remember she came by the store crying one day, and we had already broken up, saying that her mama had died. It was a lot lot to Denise. She was, for the most part, she was extremely happy, smiling, fun, fun fun-loving, but um, there was some sadness, too. She was... I think things that had happened in her life, she was often sad. But we had actually the times that I was with her, we had a lot of fun. And I got great memories of her. And When you heard about the murder, what was your first reaction or thought? My brother-in-law called me. And I remember he asked me if I was sitting down. And I said, I'm not assumed something about my mom or sister or something. But anyway... And he told me that his, you know, Denise had been murdered and he, one of his friends worked on the, in the fire department. And so he was one of the people on the scene. So he called me that morning. I don't know how long had it, it had been, but that's what I found out. My brother-in-law called me because his friend worked on the fire department and um, was one of the people there. Because police had suspected Jeff Magruder for the crime, and he says he was questioned very heavily, I asked Chip if he ever felt any pressure from investigators. At the time of the murder, Chip lived on Ocracoke Island, a small speck of land two hours and 45 minutes south of Kill Devil Hills. It's only accessible by boat or ferry. Chip was not interviewed in 1997, but he says years later, Jim Mulford knocked on his front door. 
Did law enforcement ever contact you? Yes, I knew Jim Mulford, who I knew. He's coming to our store. He called me and I think it was, I can't remember how long, but it was a long time after the murder. And um, he came down and talked to me. Did he have any specific questions for you or was he more just like, hey, how can you help me? Both. both. He wanted to know where I was and, you know, if I was here in Ocracoke at the time, which I was. And asked me, I can't remember any specific questions, but anything that would be helpful, which I pretty much, I didn't have anything, so. After their talk, Chip felt he wasn't much help to Mulford, except for offering one piece of incriminating information he still felt law enforcement should look into. But I did have one thing, and I will tell it to you, but I'm sure it's been talked about it before, but I saw two letters from a guy in Florida who was either in prison or gotten out of prison. He had been in prison or was in prison, but he wrote her a couple of very explicitly sexual letters. I saw the letters and I said, who is this? And I asked her questions, but the thing I remember, I said, is this, who is this? Is this black guy? And she said, no, he's, he's Muslim. And I said, that's religion. What? <laughs> I don't get it. She said, well, he's, he's dark. He's dark guy, but he's not black. I mean, they were sexually explicit. So that was the one thing that popped in my mind after when I got to thinking about when she had murdered, who the hell could have done this? Because I didn't know who she was hanging around with at the time, you know, of her death. But that was the one thing from my past that I remembered. The description of a man with dark complexion harassing Denise also matches Jeff Magruder's memory of a man Denise told him had sexually assaulted her while living in Florida. She told me about it, but she had gone down there and was involved with some guy that was in the cocaine. And from what I understood, it was a black guy. She always told me that a black guy had raped her. You know, that's all I know about that. I couldn't say for sure if there was a definitive connection here, but what the two ex-boyfriends recall is incredibly similar and something I can't write off. I asked Chip more about the letters he discovered written to Denise prior to her murder. So she would have gotten those letters in the years that you guys were dating, said in, yes. in, the, in the early 90s. Yes. Were the letters threatening in any way? No, just sex talk. And he addressed her as if he knew her and she had had some sort of interaction with him. That's yes. Like, did she say if she had dated him or they had just hooked up? I believe or? so. She, um, that I don't know. I don't know if it was a boyfriend or how um, serious it was. I, I don't know if I did then or I don't remember now. Did he have a name? No, I don't remember. I'm sure, I think it was on the letter, but I don't remember. Finding those two letters is a serious clue in figuring out who would have had motive to harm Denise or worse, want her dead. The crazy thing is, is Jim Mulford found out about the letters after he talked to Chip Evans, which was years after the crime. Chip said he found the letters and discussed their contents with Denise when they dated, which would have been in 1991 or sometime around there. So we're talking possibly six or seven years from when Denise got the letters until her murder, and then tack on a few more years going by until Jim Mulford, the lead detective on the case, found out about them. He wrote them down. I remember he had a notepad, and we sat there and we talked for a while. 
And um, that was one of the things I told him that he wrote down, but I don't remember his reaction to it. It makes me wonder, if Kill Devil Hills police had known about these letters in 1997, would they have done things differently? Chip says not knowing the answer to that question frustrates him. He's grown angry over the years, never being able to understand why this happened to his former girlfriend. Who the hell would do this? But I started listening to your stuff today and I got to wonder, why, why would someone do this? Why? That's the one thing I just kept thinking all day long. Why? My intention all along with this podcast has been to help answer that question. Why? But what if the person who can answer that question is trying to make themselves known to me, to us? She said, I, I want to tell you about this. I wasn't going to tell you, but I said, you need to tell me anything you know. And then she said, no, I want to show you this. And she showed me and she said, that is not sun damage. Somebody burnt that off of there. You can see where the damage is on the stove. And then the plaque was burnt off. So sometime between July 2017 and now, in 2018, the funeral home says it it got burned. Yes. How could you do something like that and live with yourself every day? But then again, people were freaks. Whoever this crazy person is probably is walking the streets down here and acting like every day is a good day. A little bit scary for the people who live on the beach, if you ask me. (laughs) That's peculiar. And I don't like peculiar things. There are several two-story houses around there where you'd be able to go up and see from one end of that cemetery to the other. In police work, that's what we call a fluke. There's just two episodes left this season, and trust me, you do not want to miss them. So make sure you're subscribed to CounterClock on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, so you can get the next two episodes as soon as they become available. Your five-star ratings and reviews help us draw more listeners to this show and get Denise's story out for more people to hear. Follow CounterClock on social media. We're on Twitter at at CounterClockPod, and on Instagram, look for the handle CounterClockPodcast. CounterClock is an AudioChuck original podcast. Ashley Flowers is the executive producer, and all reporting and hosting is done by me, Delia D'Ambra. <laughs>